Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Chief Economist at Aberdeen. And I'm Luke Bartholomew, Senior Economist at Aberdeen. And today we're talking about the state of the US economy with Aberdeen's Deputy Chief Economist, James McCann. James, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So in particular, the US economy is defying expectations and doing remarkably well. And that's despite widespread predictions of a recession amid the Fed's large rate hiking cycle. Instead, growth is resilient and inflation has been moderating. And that's a combination which looks a lot like a soft landing. And indeed, financial markets have moved to to price a rising probability of that fairly benign outcome. So what we thought we'd do with today's episode is put forth both sides of the debate, the strongest case for why the US economy could well be defying expectations and heading towards a soft landing, but also the counter argument that this cycle still ends in a downturn over a time horizon that should matter for investors. And this really is one of the biggest debates in global macro markets at the moment. Yeah, that's right, Paul. And I guess one of the most important arguments in favour of a US recession was that it was in some sense necessary to restore price stability. The idea was that inflation had become so high and entrenched, the labour market was so tight, that the only way in which inflation could be brought back to consistent levels that the central bank was looking for was via a recession of increase in unemployment to kill wage and price setting behaviour. But since then, we've actually seen inflation data be remarkably well behaved. Um, Year-on-year rates of inflation haven't quite got back to 2%, yet the CPI measure is a little bit above 3%, and the PCE measure, which is Fed's preferred measure of inflation, is a little bit above 4%. But if you look at those on a sequential basis, so how much the uh, inflation the economy is generating right now. Those are numbers that are much closer to 2%, not quite at 2% yet, but uh, a significant amount of progress has been made. And what's really striking about that is that it's happened without any significant weakness in the economy, any pain from rising unemployment. In fact, if anything, activity looks like it might have accelerated recently. So perhaps what the economy is benefiting from is a very steep Phillips curve. So it's only taken a small increase in slack to generate a big fall in inflation pressure. And moreover, that slack has been generated not by destroying jobs, which is clearly painful and an increase in unemployment, but instead destroying vacancies instead, which is a much less painful process for the economy to go through. So the thought might be that, well, we've made this much progress already on inflation. We're already extremely close to 2%. Why would it need a recession to get us down to that final bit of 2% consistent inflation pressure? So James, in that context, what is the strongest argument that a recession is in some sense still necessary? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of those, you know, there's very clearly been a great deal of progress on, on the inflation front. I think the first thing to do, though, is to really look at these inflation data very carefully to try and see what's going on underneath the bonnet. You mentioned the headline improvements, and really, that's been a, a commodities story. So energy prices and food prices account for around 80% of the decline in CPI from its peak, and then core goods accounts for the majority of the rest. 
there's been less of a decline in, in core services. And you're absolutely right that the short-term sequential data, they do look a lot better. But we have some concerns with that. First of all, it's over a relatively short period of time. Secondly, when we look at those sort of core services, excluding housing indicators that people are most focused on because they think gives a best reading of where domestic price pressures are setting up, then actually we think there hasn't been quite as much progress, especially when we exclude a couple of the more volatile components there. So health insurance prices in the CPI measure have been plummeting, and that's just because of a methodological change that the BLS has made. We've seen airfares fall by 16% in aggregate over the summer, which looks like a pretty extraordinary thing. It might be related to, to jet fuel prices, but also we know that there's been a lot of volatility in airfare pricing post-pandemic and particularly around the seasonal adjustment of those. So I think we're a little bit more skeptical. A way of putting it might be that the death of inflation may be slightly exaggerated, albeit I'd certainly concede there's been there's been progress there. So we're still a little bit concerned that we think underlying inflation is probably still running a good bit in, in excess of the Fed's target. And then I think your your second point, sort of trying to explain how has this happened painlessly is, is an important one. And when we look at the sort of natural drivers of, of US inflation through the labor cost dynamic, we still think that those labor costs are running are running too strong, still well in excess of, of, of the inflation target when we try and account for productivity too. So we, we're not fully convinced there's been a, a full benign disinflation has taken place. We still think a further adjustment is needed. And it's a good question to say, can that continue to be painless? You know, historically, that's that's not been the case, but this has been an unusual period. So I think we have to keep an open mind from that perspective. But I still would, would urge that there's a good amount of work to be done before we get to this target. And we're not there yet, even though some of the short-term inflation prints maybe feel a little bit that way. So regardless of whether or not recession is necessary to tame inflation, another part of the case has been that the Fed's tightening has already been sufficient to generate a downturn. So necessity or otherwise, you know, aside, the damage could have already been done by 525 basis points of rate hikes working its way through the system. But I suppose the the remarkable resilience of the US economy over the past year could well suggest actually it's not sufficient to to generate a downturn. And in particular, you know, this resilience is manifest in composite PMIs set above 50, now casts, which kind of track near-term growth, suggesting that Q3 US GDP growth could come in very strong. And this resilience has been driven by uh, consumer and business balance sheets, i.e. the finances of households and corporates are just in pretty good shape. So households came out of the pandemic with enormous overhangs of savings, you know, by our estimates, James, they were as much as 10% of GDP above what's normal. Aggregate debt loads of households are actually fairly low after years of post-financial crisis deleveraging. 30-year fixed mortgage rates, of course, also attenuate some of the pass-through of higher interest rates. And then on the corporate side, debt loads are actually quite high, but it does appear that business borrowing has been, been termed out onto kind of longer-term lower rates. So that means that there hasn't been as much of the pass-through of higher interest rates. At the same time, high earnings growth amid a high inflation environment actually help corporates. So that means that the, the ratio of corporate interest payments as a share of profits actually fallen back 
even as interest rates have gone up. And then perhaps the final thing that would bolster the case for a soft landing is that one could argue that the peak pass through of higher interest rates is actually already passed. So ordinarily, we think of monetary policy as having long and variable lags, but the trough and actually turnaround in the most interest rate sensitive sectors of the US economy, things like housing and business investment, could mean that we're already through, we're out the other side of the peak tightening uh, in, in policy rates in terms of its pass through to the economy. So that's that's the kind of strongest case for actually it's the tightening so far won't inevitably lead to recession. But on the other hand, James, you know, there are signs of weakness. There are certain indicators you could point to which really are quite weak. So what's the strongest case that actually the Fed's actions are enough to get this downturn in motion? Well, I, I think the first, you know, I think you set out the case very strongly there around why the economy has been much more resilient than we expected. And I think forecasters in general probably have to eat a little bit of a humble pie this year, given you know that tightening cycle and the, the lack of a, a growth slowdown. I guess making the case that there will be a bite in policy and we will see weaker growth and, and that will eventually culminate in a downturn, we maybe have to look at some of that ballast and say, is it something that we think is a permanent feature of the economy or is it something that we think will be eroded over time? And I think I'd probably fall into, into the latter camp at the moment. So if we take the, the consumer dynamic, which I think has been really critical, particularly in this recent upswing in activity, which has led to tracking estimates of, of, of GDP for the third quarter, you know, above 5% annualized. Consumers are still very heavily drawing down on their post-pandemic savings. You know what's been extraordinary is that, that those drawdowns accelerated over the course of this summer. So it's you know absolutely the case that consumers are, are spending money and they have the firepower to do so because they can tap those buffers. We still think though that those are are finite, and when we try and cut the numbers, both from trying to estimate those ex savings that you mentioned, and then cross checking that by looking at the financial accounts, looking at checking account balances for, for U.S. households, it does look that they will you know, eat very significantly into those by by the end of this year. So we are not convinced that consumers can t- continue to defy gravity and spend at this clip, given the fact that those savings will eventually start to run dry, and we know that. The, the dispersion of those savings obviously very uneven. So some, I imagine, lower income households are already meeting the limits of, of that firepower. And then on the corporate side, corporates have been shielded through the, the term structure of their debt from, from higher interest rates. You know, when we look at the redemption profile for corporates, then certainly it does look like they're going to have to increasingly roll on to higher interest rates, particularly for, for higher yield companies. That wall looks pretty steep. So I think there'll be more of a bite from, from policy there. And both households and corporates are also operating in an environment of very, very tight bank lending standards too. We've seen the tightening in the senior loan officer survey. We know that typically instigates quite a sharp credit crunch. Again, perhaps that credit crunch is happening a little later because of the strong balance sheet position of, of the private sector. And then, you know, if we look at a range of other indicators, maybe they're not quite as rosy as some of the, the hard activity data that we are seeing. You mentioned um, some tentative rise in delinquencies, maybe hints to some distress creeping into aspects of, of the household sector. We know the conference board's leading economic indicator is very much in line with what we normally expect to see across those measures um, for a recession to be to be on its way. 
um, private sector surveys are pointing actually towards a weaker end to the year in terms of activity. We have seen a steady deterioration in those. We know that corporate profitability has been under a degree of pressure and margins are coming under pressure too. They're classic sort of late cycle dynamics as well. So when we try and when we try and cut these and balance these these dynamics, you know, certainly I think we have to be very conscious that the economy's been much more resilient this year. But I think when we forecast forward, we we are cognizant that we think five percent plus policy rates are tight. We do expect that tightening to have an effect on on activity. We might think it will be non-linear through the economy, so maybe it has already affected the most interest rate sensitive sectors of activity so far. But we think the bulk of the tightening is still to to come, and that's why. On balance, and it has become a, a tighter call, we still do think a, a, a downturn is probably more likely, albeit maybe coming a little later um, in, in 2024. So another interesting aspect of this debate and another reason it can be very difficult to tell whether we're heading for a, a hard or a soft landing is that in real time, at least for a while, those two states might feel very similar in the sense that they both presumably involve a slowing in activity and inflation it's just that in the soft landing it stabilizes at a low but expansionary level but in a hard landing that that slowdown continues but as this is sort of uh, unfolding and you're seeing the data come in they can feel very very similar alternatively though i guess there is another transition path into a recession so rather than this sort of slowing down slowing down and eventually you tip in you could imagine the economy goes through for one of a better phrase, something like a, a Wiley Coyote moment where the economy, so to speak, comes off the edge of the cliff. Uh, it takes a while for gravity to catch up, but eventually gravity does catch up and it falls extremely rapidly. So to translate in economic terms, what I'd be imagining there is that we see a quarter perhaps of extremely strong growth and then it just tips very, very quickly into contraction rather than a, a slowing to below trend growth and then sort of falling slowly into recession so of those two transition paths what do you think is a more plausible way for us to end up in recession yeah i mean this this reminds me of that that famous quote that you know things take longer to happen in economics than you think they will and then they happen faster than than you thought they could and it you know, I think that it's it's it could almost happen. It could almost happen either way. A good example is payrolls came out as we record this. I guess this morning, um, we have seen you know a, a deceleration very clearly in private sector hiring. That's halved from the pace that we'd seen at the start of of the year. In many ways, that's that's a good thing. That's exactly what you want to see as part of the soft landing. But it's hard to disentangle if that's just part of an ongoing slowdown that will culminate culminate in much more sort of distressed payrolls reports, which are telling us much weaker aspects of, you know, weaker signals about what the what the economy is is doing. You know, and similarly, when we look at things like the jobs survey, the big decline in openings is very clearly a positive sign, but we know that openings probably are the aspect of of the employment demand that that adjust first, because it takes longer then for businesses to to slow hiring decisions and then to adjust their own workforce too, similar to to hours work, which has been weaker this year, around 1% annualized over the last six months. So it's possible that all these indicators are giving us a sense of comfort at the moment. They're consistent with a soft landing, but actually beneath the surface, they're the early stages of a, of a downturn. And we won't know that downturn is actually coming until later. And then that downturn might be might be quite sudden. I know, I know that both of you, Paul and Luke, have written on on stall speed yourselves, and I guess that that 
dynamic, but whereby an economy reaches a tipping point once once activity slows to a certain point. I'm not sure if that would be something that's relevant around around this. Yeah, so we did a research project a couple of years ago looking at stall speed dynamics in the history of, of GDP data and economic cycles. And a finding there was that um, economies do often stall into recession. So slowdowns can become kind of self-fulfilling um, such that actually what looks for a while just like a modest slowdown in growth can actually just continue to the point where um, growth is actually just straight up negative, i.e. the economy is in recession. So that would be kind of Luke's first transition path, I suppose. But James, is it plausible that the loosening in labour market conditions, which so far has been very benignly felt via a fall in job vacancies, i.e. fewer openings are being advertised, and that's how the labour market is loosening rather than um, more painfully through an actual rise in unemployment. Can that continue? And I have in mind here, you know, what we economists would technically call beverage curve loops as one way in which actually a period of declining vacancies in time gives way to rising unemployment. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right there. What we've seen has been pretty extraordinary. It's this decline in openings, as I mentioned, would often be seen as a precursor to, to, to weaker unemployment or rising unemployment dynamics. So that's what generates these, these loops where you get sort of the, the movement where openings increase first, but then unemployment increases. And you, not to get too technical, but you slide along a, a beverage curve. I think through, you know, post-pandemic, we saw a big shift higher in, in openings, sort of a structural shift higher or what looked like a structural shift higher. I think part of the decline maybe has been a reverse of that. So it's the economy maybe healing from the pandemic, figuring out some of those matching issues it had between employers and, and workers. And maybe there has been a, a large aspect of that decline in openings, which which has been benign. But historically, when we when we do look, it is unusual to see openings fall very significantly without any effect on, on the labor market. Normally, we tend to see those feed-through effects between sort of three to six months. So we would expect if there is if this decline in openings is going to cause economic distress, that to start showing up relatively, relatively soon. So we'll certainly be watching very closely. Obviously, we got a pop in the unemployment rate as well um, this morning, but you know that looks to be more a participation story at this stage. So I'm not seeing that as a sign of labour market distress necessarily, but you know it's it's absolutely possible. Again, just going back to this initial theme that some of the the seeming soft landing esque tone to the data is actually an element or in contains within it those normal economic dynamics which which are sort of setting the stage or the early stages of a downturn. So what does that mean for timings then in terms of the point at which actually growth could turn negative? You know, we're just about in the camp of uh, being recession in the end. When do we think that could that could hit? Absolutely. I think a recession this year now looks really, really unlikely, um, just based on on the current run rate of data through through Q3. Um, it's possible we do get that moment where the economy falls off a cliff into into Q4, but even the the leading indicators aren't necessarily signalling that at the moment. We've pushed it, or I, I guess our expectation is it might shift back a little further into into mid 2024. So probably pushing back our expectation in total by around six months or so. That would allow a greater time for some of these 
balance sheet supports, be it from the consumer or from low fixed business interest rate lending to start filtering out and for them to feel the bite more, I think, from, from tighter policy settings and for more of those cyclical downswing dynamics to really, really start kicking in. That would be consistent with you know, the messages from our recession probability models, which have actually started to show short-term recession risks declining, likely off the back both of some of those short-term data dynamics, which seem to have, have improved a little, if anything, and some of the more benign messages from financial markets too. But those signals still on a longer term, let's say nine to 12 month horizon are still that the economy is in is in a degree of trouble and that a downturn is still still relatively likely. So that's why we sort of feel that the mid-2024 feels about an appropriate point to put a recession into our bed's base case, you know, albeit with the caveat, as we've mentioned, and I think this discussion illustrates well that this is, you know, a, a really close call and getting these timings, let alone the, the direction, is is very challenging at the moment. I think that's exactly right, James. This has become a very close call. I think what our discussion brings out and the way in which the data has evolved over the last six months or so is that the path to soft landing has widened somewhat. What seemed like uh, a a pretty remote upside scenario at one point that the Fed would be able to, to pull this thing off does seem to have increased in probability. And I guess that's kudos to the Fed in some extent to they've actually managed to get us even to this point uh, and i suppose the the closeness of those two scenarios does go some way to to showing the importance of of thinking through the uncertainties facing the world in terms of of different scenarios certainly that is what the market has to price ac- across a broad risk distribution and that's how we think about the outlook as well and i guess we will see how it evolves over the rest of this year and into next year whether we have that cliff moment or not um, but at least for this week that is all that we have time for so as always let me please remind you to subscribe and rate us on your podcast platform of choice and then all that remains is for me to thank James for joining us today and his excellent thoughts and to thank you all for listening so thanks very much and speak again soon This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.